No, mine doesn't. <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah, mine often doesn't. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. Okay, let's turn to uh, Genesis. And the last couple of weeks we were looking at Genesis chapter seven, and today uh, I'd like to look at chapter eight. We'll see how far we get. I, we, we may get uh, through the chapter, but uh, we'll give it a stab anyway. But uh, let's uh, uh, let's read. Uh, actually, go back into chapter seven just so we kind of set the context again and read down through chapter eight. And then we can review some of the things that we looked at last week. Uh, let's start in chapter 7, beginning in verse uh, 17 and read down through chapter 8. Then the flood came upon the earth for 40 days, and the water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. The water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. The water prevailed more and more upon the earth so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher and the mountains were covered. All flesh that moved on the earth perished, birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind. And all that was on the dry land and all in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, and they were blotted out from the earth. And only Noah was left, together with those that were with him in the ark. The water prevailed upon the earth 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. And God caused the wind to pass over the earth and the water subsided. Also, the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed, and the rain from the sky was restrained, and the water receded steadily from the earth. And at, one, excuse me, and at the end of 150 days, the water decreased. In the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. The water decreased steadily until the tenth month, in the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains became visible. Then it, came, then it came about at the end of forty days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made, and he sent out a raven, and it flew here and there until the water was dried up from the earth. And then he sent out a raven from him to see if the water was abated from the face of the land. But the dove, uh, excuse me, but the dove found no resting place for the sole of its feet, of its foot. So she returned to him into the ark, for the water was on the surface of the earth. Then he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark to himself. So he waited yet another seven days, and again she sent, he sent out the dove from the ark. The dove came to him toward evening, and behold, in her beak was a freshly picked olive leaf. So that Noah, so Noah knew that the water was abated from the earth. Then he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, but she did not return to him again. Now it came about in the six hundred and first year, in the first month, on the first of the month, the water was dried up from the earth. Then Noah removed the covering from the ark and looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. 
In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by their families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma and the Lord said to Himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. Okay? Well, just uh, take a, let's take a few moments and think back to uh, things we talked about last week in chapter 7. What do you remember we talked about last week? Okay. And then also that the flood, except saying the waters prevail, and that the judgment will prevail. God's judgment is sure okay. and definite. Okay. You get an A. <laughs> Anybody else want to venture a comment? <laughs> we talked about types and anti-types. Okay. And Noah, <clears throat> the ark, and the flood being a type of Christ. Okay. And the uh, righteousness that Noah exhibited by faith is the same thing that we do in putting our yeah. lives in Christ. Yeah. The same way we put us in the family in the ark. Yeah. What is a type and what is an anti-type? The anti-type is the real thing. Uh, type is the shadow of the real thing. Okay. It okay. demonstrates what that is. Okay. And in the Old New Testament, in the Old Testament we have the types typically, and then in the Old, in the New Testament, no pun intended. And in the New Testament we have the antitype. Okay, so the type would be the shadow or, or something in the Old Testament, something that happens in the Old Testament that serves as a pattern or an illustration or an example of something greater that's going to happen later <coughs> under the New Covenant. And so, as he mentioned, the the Ark is a type of Christ. The Ark is the shadow or the representation or the illustration of the ultimate reality, which is Christ. And we see a number of those things in the whole story of the flood of types and antitypes. Okay? What else? We didn't talk about it, but I've always been amazed when I think about that at how smart he probably had to be to build this thing. Well, he did take 120 years to get it done. So, <laughs> how many times he started over? <laughs> really? I wonder how many times he thought, you know, this thing leaks. <laughs> he probably double coated that pitch. <laughs> Yeah. 
Well, we know, we know, just a second, we know that, that when God has a great project like that, that, that His Spirit really imbues people with the understanding. We see that in the building of the, of the tabernacle, of the construction of the tabernacle, and then later in the construction of the temple, that the Lord actually, by His Holy Spirit, equips people to do these just really amazing jobs, and I'm sure He did, did with Noah. But, pardon? Yeah, Nehemiah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ruth, you had a comment. Oh, uh huh. Interesting, yeah. Yeah. That's neat. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. That's good. Imagine God praying like put him to sleep. Is there a towel? Yeah, yeah. I just wonder his temptation. You know, if it's like rats come on, he's kind of like, what if God's looking? And the mosquitoes. Well, our imaginations can go on here. I'm going to curtail this at this point. But, but there is, uh, we talked, of course, also last week about the number of repetitions that we see, particularly in chapter 7. As we get in chapter 8, you see some, but not nearly as many as you see in chapter uh, 7. And, and one of the things that we talked about last week that's repeated a number of times in chapter 7 is this issue of, of uh, Noah's obedience to God. And that comes up again and again. And there was something I wanted to mention in that regard and, and I, uh, I didn't think about it or we didn't have time to talk about last week. But, but one of the things that, that's repeated uh, over and over again is the, is the uh, statement that Noah entered the ark and specifically that he entered the ark according to the commandment of God, that God commanded him to enter the ark. And as I was reflecting on that last week, before last week's lesson, one of the things that struck me was the ark, of course, is the type of Christ. It, is, it was Noah's salvation. It was how Noah was to be temporally saved through the flood. And he was commanded to enter into that salvation. And I was, as I was thinking about that, I was thinking, you know, that's really true about the gospel itself. We, we often talk, talk about the gospel invitation. <laughs> we talk about being invited to Christ. We, at the end of our worship services, oftentimes we have what we call an invitation, of course. And, and really the gospel is an invitation and there is an invitation extended to people in the gospel. But the gospel is also more than an invitation. It is a command. We are commanded to enter into Christ. We are commanded to place our faith in Christ. We are commanded to trust Christ. And, and I was just thinking that, that perhaps in our communication of the gospel to people, sometimes we, maybe we should go beyond just thinking in terms of an invitation and be maybe a little more aggressive. The Lord didn't invite Noah to enter the ark. He commanded him to enter the ark. And when he did so, when he entered the ark, he did it in response to the commandment of God. And I just thought... 
that in, in our sharing the gospel with people is sometimes maybe we ought to be perhaps a little more urgent in how we communicate to them. This is what God requires of you, that you enter into the ark, which is Christ. So anyway, that's something we, I thought about and I meant to talk about last week and we didn't. Well, as we pick up the story this week then, last week we, we were right there at the end of chapter 7 and the waters were prevailing. They'd been prevailing over the earth for 150 days. They had, uh, they had risen up over the top of the highest mountains and uh, uh, by 15 cubits or something like that, which is uh, apparently... Uh, Roughly, at least the draft of the the draft of the ark, the amount of the ark that that actually uh, goes underwater. Uh, but at the very end of our study last week, we we had in a sense stepped outside of the ark and we had looked at the story of the flood from outside of the ark from the perspective of those being judged. And that's the that's the scenario we see though there in the last verses of chapter last section of chapter 7 is we've we've stepped outside of the ark we've stepped away from Noah and we're looking at at things from the perspective of those who are outside of the ark and those who are being judged and and at the end we see the the whole earth there at the end of chapter 7 we see the whole earth covered with water there's not a tree or a or a a mountain, there's nothing in view except simply water and one, in the whole scheme of things, little old boat out there and in that boat is Noah. And that's where we pick up the story in chapter 8. And, and as I was thinking about that, you know, oftentimes I, I, I think we, have a, we can have a very romanticized view of the story of Noah and the ark. You know, we learned the story as children, you know, and it's kind of a cute story. We learned about the animals coming and Noah's there. And we like to think about and imagine, like we were doing here just a few minutes ago, what would it have been like? You're in the, you're in the ark and all these animals are making noise and you're scooping manure and all this sort of stuff, you know. And, and so we kind of have this imagination. But I think sometimes maybe we just forget to put ourselves in Noah's place. What was it like to be Noah and to be in that ark for over a year under the circumstances that he's facing? Noah, you know, it's, it's pretty exciting to think about Noah being saved when all the rest of the world is being judged and, and he's being rescued by the hand of God. But you have to remember how long this went on. And I think it's probably also helpful for us to remember what Noah has lost when he enters into the ark and when the flood comes. Here's a guy who's lived 600 years. He spent 600 years making a life for himself and his family. He's planted a farm, presumably. He's raised cattle. He's built a house. He's established, I, I know everybody else in the world apparently was wicked, but I assume he'd established friendships and relationships and business partnerships. All of these things he had built over a period of 600 years. He had friends. He had relatives other than his wife and his sons and his daughters-in-law. He had cousins and aunts and uncles and, and all kinds of relatives. 
And when God shut the door on that ark, Noah went into the ark, God shut the door, and the waters rose and covered the earth, Noah had lost everything he knew except for his family that was with him in the ark. And then he's in the ark, he's, he's lost everything he knows, and he knows that the world that he knows will never be the same. He cannot imagine his future. He cannot imagine where he will live or what that will look like or how he will get his life started again and who after he's lived 600 years should have to start his life over again. <laughs> so his future is uncertain and his past is gone and he's floating around in this boat And from all the evidences we have, for over a year, he doesn't hear a single word from God. And then I'm remembered of what James says, that he, <laughs> James is talking about these old guys back in the Old Testament, and he says they had a nature like ours. And I think, okay... So, Noah was not this super perfect saint, and we'll discover that as we go on in the story after the flood. We'll find he has some weaknesses. And so, he's a guy with a nature like mine. What does that mean? Well, I don't think that means he has my personality and my temperament necessarily, but, but there's no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man. And I think, what would I have struggled with? right there at the end of chapter 7. When I'm out there on the boat, and yeah, my family's here, and, and God told me all this was going to happen, and He told me to build this boat, and I, and I did. But you know, I went back this, uh, just this morning, just to make sure I was right on this, I went back and I read through those instructions in chapter 6 again, when God came to Noah and told him to build the ark. And you know what's interesting? is God tells him to build the ark, tells him how to build it, and he'll use the pitch and you know the three decks and the rooms and all that sort of thing. But you, did, you know, did you notice when we were studying that the one thing God didn't tell him? He never told him if he'd ever get off the ark. Whoa. He just says, you get on the ark and I'm going to save you and I'm going to establish my covenant with you and I'm going to save all those animals. But he never told him about what happens after that. Well, after about four or five months on the ark, if it were me, I'd start to go, now, what exactly did he say? Now, how do I know I'd think that? Well, one thing is I know myself. But the other thing is I remember what happened in the garden with Adam and Eve. When Satan came to Eve and said, has God said? I have no doubt that, that in those long, and they had to be long days on that ark with a lot of work to do, but on those, in those long days on the ark, I have no doubt that there were times when the enemy came to Noah and said, are you sure? 
God's not talking to you. What's going to happen now? What's going to happen to your sons? What's going to happen to your wife? Are you ever going to get off of this thing? And and that's really the that's really the scenario we're kind of left with at the end of chapter seven. And I think in I think the parallels to our own lives are can be pretty striking at times. Because <laughs> all of us in our lives at times face a flood, don't we? All of us, some of you have already done so in your lives. Some of you maybe are doing so right now. Some of you certainly will in the future. But we have times in our lives when everything that's familiar to us, when our whole lives that we've constructed and built over a period of time, when our dreams and our visions and our anticipation of the future, when all of those things are swept away. And sometimes they're swept away by by tragedy in our life, by death or illness or, or, or uh, any, any number of tragedies. Sometimes they're swept away by our own foolishness, our own folly. We make stupid choices and we make stupid decisions and it ruins our lives. Sometimes it's swept away not by our folly, and this is the one that's really hard to take, but sometimes it's swept away by the folly of others. Other people make silly choices and stupid decisions and it, and it ruins our lives and wrecks our lives and we're, and we're left with nothing but an ark. There are a lot of things like even today people that don't see sunlight for a long time become depressed. And I was just thinking, I don't know how many days they went even without seeing the sun or sunlight or fresh air. And I have to have a wind on my office one day, you know, I'm yeah. having problems. So yeah. that would be hard in a lot of ways. Yeah. We've been on a cruise, and one of the things that, <coughs> you know, is a little unnerving. It's whenever you get out and you can't see anything yeah. else. And you kind of think of the touch. But Don't think about that when you have your you can't. There is the Bermuda Triangle. You know, I remember my quiet time, I was reading about Jonah and the well. It's like, oh, that's kind of weird, you know. But the water is blacker than black at night. I had, I never thought about that, Charlie. It's just like black. And it, and then you know you're really vulnerable because you fall off that ship. It's over. It's pitch black. So I can't even imagine how dark. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I and I think we we overlook that at times. We don't stop and think that you know because we have we oftentimes have this romanticized view of Noah and the Ark. We don't think about what a frightening experience it is to be on this boat. It had no rudders, it had no motor, it had no sails, and if it did, it had nowhere to go. And they're just out there adrift in this incredible storm. <clears throat> and then after the storm abates, they're still out there afloat for five months. And you begin to think, okay, God, did I get all this right? Did I get all this straight? And then we come to chapter 8, verse 1. And it says, but God remembered Noah. 
Now, that little three-word phrase there, and the animals, of course, too, on the ark, but that little three-word phrase there is loaded with significance. Because when we talk about remembering something, oftentimes what does that imply? You've forgotten something, (laughs) okay? Now, not always, you know. Sometimes my wife will say, Rick, would you stop by the bank on your way home and, you know, pick up some cash for me or whatever, you know? And occasionally I remember. I don't ever forget, you know. I think, okay, when I get, you know, on my way home, you know. And then when I get home, she'll go, did you remember to go by the bank? And I'll go, yeah, I remembered, you know. Well, I never really forgot, okay. But oftentimes when we talk about remembering, we're implying... (laughs) that at some point, the thing has completely slipped our mind. Okay. But that's not the way the, verse, the word is used here. In fact, this particular word is an interesting Hebrew word because the idea here, and it's used over and over again in Scripture in this sense, is it's not the idea that somebody has forgotten something and then, then it returns to their mind. But the word here, remembered, is used in... Uh, in a number of places in Scripture to communicate the idea of acting upon a previously made commitment to a covenant partner. Okay? So, so for example, when we get to chapter 9 next week, and we, we start talking about the rainbow and things like that. God, God talks there using the same word about remembering His covenant. He looks at the rainbow and He remembers His covenant. In Genesis chapter 30, God talks about remembering Rachel and opening her womb. It's not that He ever forgot her, that he, but that He is now acting where it appears that for some time God has not been acting on Rachel's part. Now, God acts on Rachel's part in, uh, in keeping with the promise or the covenant that He had made to Rachel and made to her husband. Uh, in Exodus chapter 2 and Exodus chapter 6, when, when God send, remember when God sends Moses back into Egypt to the children of Israel, and He says to Moses there in chapter 2 and then later again in chapter 6, He says, I remembered my covenant with the children of Israel. And He sends His people back. So over and over again, this, this particular Hebrew word is used not in the sense of something has slipped God's mind and He goes, oh yeah, I forgot. But rather it's the idea that God is now acting upon a promise that He made sometime in the past. Okay? And uh, so again, we have it, for example, in 1 Samuel chapter 1 where Hannah, remember Hannah has gone and she's gone, uh, she's gone to, uh, to the man of God and she's gone to pray for a child and then God through the man of God, speaks to Hannah and says, you're going to have a child. Okay, That's God's promise to her. Then she goes back home. And when she gets back home, it says, God remembered Hannah. What does that mean? It doesn't mean he forgot about her and then he gets, oh yeah, oh, there's Hannah. It's, what it means is that he had made a promise to her when she was there with the man of God. And when she gets back home, God then acts and causes her to conceive in according with the promise that He had made, the covenant promise that He had made to her. 
And so this idea of God remembering Noah is all tied up in this idea of covenant. Remember, we've already talked some about covenant. We're going to talk more about covenant today, and we're going to talk a lot more about covenant in the weeks ahead, okay? Because we've got to understand this principle. But what's happening here is that Noah is afloat on the, is floating out there in that boat, and that at some point where it appears from a human perspective that God is nowhere around and God is paying no attention, that from Noah's perspective, he's not heard a word from God. He's been on this boat now for five months. He's not heard a, a single word from God. The skies are brass, so to speak, as far as his prayers are concerned. And then God remembers. What that means is God acts. But God acts according to his covenant promise to Noah. Now, in reality, God has not really fully entered into this covenant with Noah. That's going to come at the end of the chapter. And as we move into chapter 9, the real ultimate Noahic covenant is finally ratified and things take place. And God makes uh, and and details the the terms of the covenant. But as far as God is concerned, back in chapter 6, He had promised Noah, He said, I will establish my covenant with you. So as far as God was concerned, he was already obligated to this promise. And so Noah's out here floating on the water and the waters have prevailed upon the earth. And then at some point in time, God remembered Noah. God acted according to his promise. In other words, God was faithful to Noah. And he acted. Well, the first sign of God's acting on Noah's behalf, and there are only a few signs and they come over a period of a number of months and they're very slow in coming. One commentator computed, and I don't know how accurate his his computations are, it depends on kind of how you understand the passage, but he computed that the waters were receding at the rate of four and a half inches a day. That's pretty slow answer to prayer, folks. But at some point, the first evidence of God's acting on Noah's behalf. Now, first, the waters have risen, okay, and then they start to recede. But the boat is floating on top of the water. So at that first point where God starts to act, Noah has no clue, does he? How many times in your life has God started to act and you had no clue he was acting? But after a period of time, Noah suddenly gets a clue that God's acting. What's the first clue he gets? No, before that. He hears a thump. The boat jerks. That's the last thing you want to feel, right? When you're on a boat, you know, out in the middle and all you see is water, the last thing you want to feel is a thud, you know. But they hear a thud. And that's the evidence that God has remembered Noah. That's his first evidence. And the boat settles down on the ground and then it's stuck there and the water's still all around, right? And then you go on for a period of time and, and, and the narrator details all this for us at, at some length, talking about this very slow process of the water receding and then the mountaintops are visible for a while and then after a number of days, then Noah sends out the raven and, and the raven goes to and fro but never really comes back into the ark. And then apparently a week later, it's not real clear exactly on the, on the first time he sent out the dove, but it's apparently 
excuse me, a week later, he sends out the dove and it goes out and it comes back and Noah receives it back into the boat. And then he sends it out again and then he sends it out again. Now here's my question for you. Why is Noah sending these birds out of the ark? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Okay, he wants, obviously he's trying to figure out, is the water receding? Is there, you know, is the ground getting dry enough where, you know, that's obviously what Noah wants to know, right? But it still didn't answer my question. The door hadn't been opened by <coughs> Pardon? The door hadn't been opened yet. Okay, the door hadn't opened, and why isn't the door open? Well, the other obvious answer is he can't see any land. If he could see land, there would be no point in sitting out a dove to see if there was dry land. So as far as he can see, there is no dry land. Okay, okay. So he wants to know if there's dry land. Why does he want to know if there's dry land? Okay. Okay. See, this all makes sense to you and I. Well, if it were me, actually, I had I disagreed with some of the things you said earlier, and I didn't mention it yet until just now. <laughs> now's your chance, Jim. Thank you. I'll take that chance. Not disagree. I, another perspective. <laughs> um, God's proven Himself to Noah, and everything He said up to that point, and He's in this. Art. So to me, I think that would be great evidence of God's faithfulness to him. And not being in the situation, it's hard to imagine, but I don't know that I would be so fretful thinking, okay, God has pulled this off. I'm here. I didn't, didn't even know there was so much water in the world. I didn't know what this big boat was, but here I am. God's, yeah, and, and another a side issue is there was probably some pretty smart people who maybe even built a raft and put provisions on it. And, you know, they probably didn't have enough, you know, days and days and days, 150 days of water rating and all that. So uh, I would imagine God had to wait for these people mm-hmm. who were smart, oh, yeah. maybe, and built yeah. their own boat, wait for them to die off. Um, but anyway, so here's Noah. He's, he's in this situation. If I were sending out doves, I would want to measure the progress. It's not to see if, I think the point you're getting ready to make is to see if God is faithful. I don't know. I'll let you make your own point. <laughs> yeah, please don't, because you're wrong. <laughs> I would want to measure the progress. Okay, and my question to you is, why does Noah want to measure the progress? Well, to see when I can get off of this boat. To see when I can get off. When does Noah get off the boat? When God says to get off the boat. And so here's this interesting Go ahead, Ginger. I'm sorry. I reading this and I'm an impatient person. Mike's got his head down over here. This shows you how Noah waited for God to tell him when to give Yeah, and, I, and, this, and this is my point, that 
I mean, I'm pretty impatient too. And I think at this point, after about, you know, 300 and some days of shuffling manure, I think probably all of you people would be pretty impatient at this point. You'd be wanting to get off this. It probably doesn't smell real good on this place, you know. So, so I'd want to get off. And I'd want to know. You know, I'd want to know what's the progress. But, Noah's not going to get off the ark until God tells him to get off the ark. Well, I have a parallel story to that. Okay. I've wanted to play drums professionally since I was about 20. And I do not have the opportunity. I don't think I ever will. And I'm turning 54 this year. So, God knows my heart in that. And I think I uh, have learned one of the things that this parallels Noah being impatient about something like that does nothing for you. And you learn, okay, if God is going to make this available, then I will do it. And until then, God has taught me to be patient. And I think that's what you two guys mentioned specifically. Impatience, I think God would teach you, and he probably taught Noah through that whole thing, this is going to happen when I say it's going to happen, and you resign yourself to that, and if it happens, then it honors God, and if it doesn't happen, it also honors God. And I think that's what a lesson that Noah must have learned. I, I have no doubt, but we still haven't answered my question. <laughs> I have no doubt that was going on. Every morning he get, wakes up, his wife jabs him in the side and says, Did you hear anything last night? You know? <laughs> what did you sleep for last night? You should have stayed awake. Maybe I have no doubt that was going on with somebody on the ark. Yeah, but it still doesn't answer the question. Being resigned to something like my example doesn't mean I... I didn't sell off my drums. I didn't quit practicing. I don't take every opportunity that I find to play because I don't know what God's timetable is. Yeah, if yeah. It even exists. And I think that's the point. I think that's the point is that Noah, even though he is determined that he will not set foot offside that ark until the one who told him to go on the ark tells him to go off the ark, he still wants to be fully informed of the situation. He wants to know. Now, I think this is important for us to understand because oftentimes we find ourselves in situations that we do not understand. Situations where God is directing our lives in ways and, and we want a resolution and we want answers and they're not coming and we know we should wait on God. And we're committed to wait on God. But folks, it isn't wrong to ask why. I don't know how many times I've heard people say, when you're suffering, when you're going through a difficulty, don't ask why. Well, my friends, I don't find that in the Scripture. I think you can ask God why all day long. Noah was seeking to understand his circumstances. He wanted to know where he was in relationship to the situation around him. If I was Noah, I would have been doing the same thing. I don't think I would have waited until the first day of the 
uh, of the eleventh uh, month, twelfth month, he's on the ship, or actually the eleventh month, he's on the boat. I wouldn't have waited till the first day of the eleventh month to take the roof off. Okay, I probably would have. I, I would have been anxious to know, and Noah was anxious to know. But even when Noah thought he knew that the earth was dry, he still refused to move until God said, move. And that's the lesson I draw from this. Because I see Noah, he's sending out those birds. And I'd be doing the same thing in a a totally different type of situation and almost no significance at all. I was doing the very same thing the last couple weeks in in an area. Just anxious to know, anxious to understand, but still feeling compelled to wait on God. It's okay to send out the birds, folks. It's okay to send out the raven and the dove. It's just not okay to get off the boat until God says... It's time to get off the boat. But don't you think, too, probably, I mean, as much as God has planned and the way things were planned, probably their food supply and everything was getting a little short. And he was going to develop. Yeah, I'm sure he <laughs> was. Really I'm sure he was. And, and, and that's okay, folks. It's okay to ask God those questions. It's okay to seek to understand. But never make the mistake of thinking that because you think you understand that you really know the right time. Yeah. Don't lean on your own understanding. And Noah, with what he did understand and what he knew, he knew the earth was dry, the dove hadn't come back, he'd taken the roof off, it wasn't raining anymore, and he waited another six weeks before he heard from God. Now, moving forward in the story, in the, in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, so this would make it one year and ten days since he first entered the ark. Excuse me. He hears from God. And God says, get off the ark. You, your family, all the animals, get off the ark. Okay. So now you've got the go-ahead to get off the ark. What are you thinking about? It's scary. <laughs> it's scary. Why is it scary? Well, this is kind of gross. I taught middle school, so I loved off on this. You know, when, when God was flooding it, you know that the ark was hitting the bodies. And, I mean, you can imagine the sound. Okay, now they get to get off. Well, what are they going to see? Yeah. And there will be okay now that's spoken like a true woman what are the guys thinking about what are you thinking about you've got the word to go off the ark yeah you got to find I mean you're clear up on top of a high mountain you know you can't live up there you've got to get down off the mountain you've got to find a place to live you've got to find a place decent to plant crops You've got to get the seed or whatever you've got off the ark. You've got to plant crops. You've got to build a house. You've got to get your life started again. There's a lot of work to do. What does Noah do when he comes off the ark? He worships. He stops to worship God. 
Now, if you've ever seen an artist's rendering of this particular act, you see the ark in the background. You see Noah standing there and he's got this altar about this big and he's got an animal up there, right? Mm -mm. How big was his sacrifice? What does it say? What does it say? What does it say? Every clean animal. Every clean animal. So I don't know how he pulled this off, but I got a hunch, you know, sanctified imagination here. I got a hunch that when he's letting all the animals off the ark, when he's letting the clean ones off, he's always stopping one and putting it back in its cage. Now, I don't know about you, but if that were me, that'd be hard to do. You know, we, we've read so much and talked so much in our lives growing up as Christians about animal sacrifices, we don't stop to think what it means. Nowhere so far has it ever said what is clean and what is unclean. No, that's right. We really don't know the answer to that question. And so we don't know if the clean animals here are the same as the clean animals in the law. We really don't have an answer to that we question. We've got to find it from Noah. Apparently. Because, well, no, it's obvious. Yes. He did pairs of all the unclean yes. and seven of all the clean. Yes. So I got seven, that must be a clean Somehow one. he knows, yeah, yeah. yeah. So at any rate, but what strikes me is Noah who a little bit earlier so tenderly reaches out his hand and takes that dove into the boat, which is interesting. Do you notice that's the only really detailed explanation of the whole experience? As he stops and he points out Noah's tenderness, his, uh, his environmentalism, if you will. He reaches out and he takes in this portion of God's creation and brings it tenderly into the ark. A sacrifice is a sacrifice only if it means something to us. David says in one point, he says, I will not offer to God of that which costs me nothing. And I think after a year on that boat with all those animals, Noah cared about every one of them. But now he must worship God. He must worship God before he goes down off that mountain, before he finds a place to farm, before he builds a house, before he starts his life over again. At the beginning of chapter 8, God remembered Noah, but at the end of chapter 8, Noah remembers God. And he takes of that which is dear to him now, not one little animal or two little animals, but of every clean animal, He takes one and he offers this massive sacrifice to God. He worships God. But he's doing something more than worshiping with God. You remember we've talked in in some of the things we've talked about covenant so far. Do you remember what I told you is the term that they used for instituting a covenant? Remember what I said they called it? When you made a covenant with somebody, they called it, pardon? 
They called the covenant a barit. What was the making of the barit? What did they call it? The, the cutting of a barit. What do you do when you sacrifice them? What's the first thing you do when you sacrifice an animal? You slit its throat. Okay, this is going to become terribly significant when we get to the covenant that God makes with Abraham. But I think what's happening here is Noah's gathering these animals to make a sacrifice. A sacrifice he's not been commanded to make, but a sacrifice that he of his own volition chooses to make. That he's remembering a promise that God made back in chapter 6 and verse 18 when he started the whole ball rolling. He says, I will establish my covenant with you. He hadn't done it yet. He didn't do it in chapter 6, but he told Noah, he says, I will establish my covenant with you. Now, Noah gets off the ark and what's the first thing he does? Noah cuts the barit. Noah cuts the covenant. Noah says, God promised me he's going to make a covenant and I'm going to start offering these animals. You see, one of the things that always, that always transpired in the ceremony when a covenant was ratified, when a covenant was instituted between two parties, is there was always a sacrifice made. Okay? And the sacrifice uh, typically served one, or two pur- one and sometimes two purposes. First of all, the sacrifice served the purpose of ratifying the covenant. So the two parties would make an agreement together uh, and... And then, particularly, we're talking about here uh, covenants between like kingdoms or nations, international covenants. So we might, we'd call them international. Of course, kingdoms were much smaller in those days. You know, it might just be a city or whatever. But, but in covenants, covenants between different geopolitical groups, we might say, okay, that they would, they would, they would cut a barret. They would make a sacrifice, and this sacrifice would ratify the promises that the two parties had made to one another. And so that was one of the purposes of the sacrifice. But the other purpose of the sacrifice was it was a way of saying, if you break this covenant, this is what happens to you. So when I offered a sacrifice and I slit the throat of the animal in the making of a covenant, I am acknowledging that that's what the other party can do to me if I do not keep the covenant. Now, there's, a, there's this understanding then with covenant that when you establish a covenant with somebody and you're now into this what we call fictive kinship with one another, okay? You've now become kin by legal definition. You are fictive kin, okay? As you do that, you now have this covenant loyalty to one another. You, are, you must be loyal. Now, there were two types of these, particularly with these quote, international covenants, there were two types. There were parity covenants, and then there were suzerain vassal covenants, okay? And a parity covenant would be a covenant between two nations which are basically of equal power and, and, and they've just made a covenant together for mutual defense or whatever. Okay, but then you have the suzerain vassal covenant. And this is a covenant made between some great nation and some little dinky nation, okay? And the great nation comes in and he says to the little nation, okay, now you're going to serve me and I will protect you and I'll protect you from your enemies, but you're going to pay tribute to me. Okay. Now, it sounds kind of, you know, not, not a very happy covenant on one part, but, but that's the way they were. Okay. And so you had these suzerain vassal covenants between nations. And, and the, the vassal then would agree 
to pay tribute. And he would agree to be loyal to the suzerain. Okay? And, and this loyalty to the suzerain was called love. If you kept the covenant, you were showing that you loved the suzerain. If you broke the covenant, you were said that to have hated the suzerain. Okay? And this whole loyalty thing between the parties in the covenant was referred to in, in he, by a Hebrew term, hesed. It means loving kindness or faithfulness. And so Noah here is instituting, he's wanting to put into motion this suzerain vassal covenant with God, where God is his suzerain and he is the vassal. And he begins by offering these sacrifices, something that is dear and meaningful to him. He begins to offer this to God. He's saying to God, I want to be your kin. And I want you to be my Lord. And I want you to be my ruler. And I swear loyalty. And I swear love to you. And so he offers his sacrifice. And he begins to burn these sacrifices on the altar. And the aroma ascends into heaven. Speaking anthropomorphically here, of course. And what happens? God is pleased because the, the smell of the sacrifice is what? Pleasing. It's a soothing aroma. Some translations say. And all of a sudden, my mind's doing this kind of back wheel back to some things we talked about several weeks ago. Clear back in chapter 6 when we were talking about when God was initially so worked up about this whole sin thing in the world and he's decided he's going to have to wipe the creation out that he started with. Do you remember what it, when we were talking about the whole, that, that whole study we did on does God repent? Do you remember what we talked about what God was feeling at that point? It says there in chapter 6 that he was grieved. And when we were looking at that, you remember we talked about about something that's in the Hebrew, we don't see it in the English, but in the Hebrew is that word play between the word grieved, describing God's feelings, if you will, about the wickedness that he's seen on the earth and what that is going to, the action that's going to necessitate him taking. He's feeling grieved, but there's a word play between that word grieved and the name of Noah, and the name of Noah means what? Comfort. And so we discovered, clear back in chapter 6, that Noah comforts God in God's grief. Remember that? We see him doing it again now. God, who does not take pleasure in the death of any man, has a heart that is anguished and, and grieving over all the wickedness that he has seen and over all the destruction that he has had to bring upon the earth. And now this little guy Noah climbs down off that boat 
And the first thing he says before he starts his life over again, the first thing he says is, God, I love you. God, you are right and you are just and you are faithful. And I want to be your kin. I want to cut that covenant with you that you promised you'd make with me. And God is so moved by the offering that this little guy Noah, who we're going to see is really still pretty much of a sinner. In fact, he describes him here, right here. He describes him in that verse. Do you notice? The intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. <laughs> Who's he talking about there? He's talking about Noah and those guys on the boat. So we haven't removed the sin problem, have we? Man in his heart is still sinful. Yet even at that, the heart of God is so moved by this declaration of Hesed, this declaration of covenant loyalty from the heart of Noah. He is so moved by it that God says, I will never again curse the ground on account of man and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. We'll understand when we get chapter 9 here in a few verses, he clarifies exactly what he means. He's talking about by a flood. And then he says, while the earth remains, that means until the final judgment, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. And God's saying, I know man's sinful and he needs mercy and he needs compassion and he needs patience and I'm going to do that for him. I need to hear that, don't you? Because I'm, I'm like Noah. I'm prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, like the psalmist or like the, the songwriter says. And and we're going to see that in the life of Noah. And I feel that, and it's it's tremendously comforting to know that God recognizes that in me, but He has also seen that I love Him. And that I believe He's good and just. And I want to be His kin. And so God will be faithful to me. And God will be merciful. And He will spare judgment. Now, how do I know God will be faithful? How do I know that God will show to me this hesed, this covenant faithfulness? How do I know He will show it to me? I know it this morning because I got a reminder. You know what my reminder was this morning? Same reminder you got. You woke up, the sun came up. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. Well, as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about Jeremiah. Call him the weeping prophet and you'll understand why if you read the book of Lamentations. But one of the most wonderful passages on the Hesed of God, the covenant faithfulness of God, 
is in Lamentations. It's that verse you all know. Lamentations chapter uh, 3 and verses uh, 22 and 23 says, The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Raise thy faithfulness. We know that verse, don't we? We like to quote it. We've got a hymn we love to sing. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions. They fail not. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. We sing it. We love it. Do you know what comes before those verses? If you don't, I encourage you to go home this afternoon and read Lamentations 3 from the beginning. It's a very dark picture. And Jeremiah is absolutely at the end of his rope. And then he comes to verse 21 and he says, This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. He has no other hope. In fact, earlier he's in verse 18 he says, So I say my strength has perished and so also has my hope from the Lord. He is hopeless in verse 18. And then in verse 21 he recalls to mind that every morning when he gets up he sees new mercies from the Lord and he sees God's faithfulness. And where he says there in verse 22, he says, the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. That word loving kindness is the word hesed. The Lord's covenant and faithfulness, covenant faithfulness indeed never ceases. And so, if in chapter 7 we saw for us a graphic picture, a fantastic picture, illustration of the gospel of salvation, in chapter 8 we see a fantastic picture of the faithfulness of God. And I don't know what kind of a flood you're going through in your life, but I just want to remind you that at some point in your life and your experience, God remembers. And remember what that means. That doesn't mean you slipped His mind and someday He'll remember you're down here in the mess you're in. But rather it means at some point, God will act according to the covenant promise that He has made to you. Okay? Well, next week we'll go on and we'll look at this whole Noahic covenant and what God has to say to Noah. So, Okay? <laughs> yes. Yeah.